0: Leah star one to unmute. Can't hear you. Yes. Okay, good morning and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August thirtieth, two thousand and fifteen. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, August twenty eighth, is seven nine five five. That's seven nine five five. This morning a vision for you presents. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes. How do I discard the old ones, and where do I get new ones? The big book teaches that to get over drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude. We know all action is born in thought. Our restless, irritable, and discontented thinking drove us to the action of compulsive overeating. The program of recovery transforms our thoughts and gives us a way to live where our minds don't lock on that sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking that first bite. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific proven method for producing a transformation, a change in the way we think, feel, and behave. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of our lives, are cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions, ideas, and attitudes begin to dominate us. The results are disproportionate to our efforts We are rocketed into a fourth dimension, beyond the physical, into a spiritual way of life. And as a result, a new world comes into view. Joining us this morning is Esther C., a recovered compulsive overeater from Toronto, Canada. Esther is dedicated to carrying this message of recovery, and she's here to share her experience, strength, and hope with us today. Welcome, Esther.
1: Good morning, Leah. Thank you. Thank you so much, and good morning, my fellows. Um, my name is Esther C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Canada. Just a bit congested today, so I appreciate in advance putting up with all the coughs and et cetera. Anyway, so I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. What did I recover from? The big book says, a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And this is the very first line of the first edition. So how did I recover, and how do I stay recovered? That's something that I wanted to share with you today. One of the things that I always appreciate about A Vision for You Special Edition is the variety of voices that we get to hear on the line. There's the newly recovered, the recovered a couple years, recovered decades, and I always found that there is something to learn from everybody's experience, even the ones who have just recovered. So I'll talk a little bit about my experience with you today, and I hope that, some of you will relate to some of it, and maybe it will be helpful even to those who haven't yet recovered. I've been a Compulsive eater reader for my entire life. Until I recovered, I don't remember a time when I wasn't either running towards the food or running away from the food. Food was constantly on my mind, and if it wasn't on my mind, it was in my mouth. If I was eating, I wished I wasn't eating, and if I was, wasn't was eating, I wished that I could be eating. And This is how I lif- lived for nearly the first 40 years of my life. And as the d- disease progressed into my 20s, 30s, and beyond, more and more parts of my life were affected by my eating and or, or affected by the desire to eat. There wasn't a single part of my living that remained unaffected by my disease. The paragraph on page 52 in the big book that we call, that, we, that are known as the bedevilments, really describes my life very well. So what I've done is I'm going to read that paragraph, but instead of we, I'm going to change it to I. I was having trouble with personal relationships. Check. I couldn't control my emotional nature. Check. I was a prey to misery and depression. Check. I couldn't make a living. Check. I had a feeling of uselessness. Check. I was full of fear. Check. I was unhappy. Yep. Check and I couldn't seem to be a real help to other people. Check, check, check. And I would also add to that list that my body wasn't able to take all that extra weight, and I had numerous health problems. So I didn't see a way out of this prison, and really I despaired of ever having a normal life. I tried everything and anything out there. Now, on the one hand, I couldn't believe that I would have to spend the rest of my life this way. On the other hand, I thought it's going to take nothing short of a miracle to change me and to change my life. So today I want to tell you about that miracle because the fact that food is no longer on my mind and, and, and that thoughts of eating and dieting are not chirping in my ear all day like the way they used to, that's the greatest miracle that I've experienced. The miracle isn't that I, you know, released 120 pounds and that my you know my body feels good this way. I could have done that on a diet program. The real miracle is that food is not on my mind. About eight years ago I came to the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous and for the first three years or so, my focus was mostly on abstinence and the tools, because that was really the type of fellowship that I found originally when I came into OA. And I would say that the first three years were were exciting and happy in a way, right? Because I was mostly abstinent, and I lost at that time most of my excess weight, about 120 pounds. And I had a lot of new friends who were just like me. They underst you know, you all understood my struggles with food, and there was plenty of love to go around lots of camaraderie um i didn't feel so unique in my disease because in the outside world i was i felt always the odd man out i was almost always the fattest in the room but in a way we were all gluttons so at least i wasn't alone but the excitement of new friends and new clothes and a new body once they wore off like that all, all that excitement i was basically left with me which was the same me i mean maybe a slimmer me and maybe a little bit smarter me Maybe a me that was more knowledgeable about compulsive overeating, but basically the same me. And the me that had the, this me that I was left with was the same me that had great big plans about how I was going to make my mark in the world. This was the me that wants to run the show. This is the me that's so good at managing my life and, of course, everybody else's. The me that was sure that, in the words of the big book, I could wrest satisfaction and happiness out of life if only I managed well. So... I was still there, you know, just stand back, folks, Esther's here, and just you wait and see, and if you're not lucky enough to experience her firsthand, well, you'll probably read about it in the paper. So, you know, even just, I don't know how I lived in that mindset for so many years, for decades, because even just talking about it is tiring. So same old, same old. So now what? I mean, I wasn't really impressed by what I saw around me. I saw a lot of absent people. Or who who were not necessarily happy or serene. I mean, there were people who weren't abstinent, but I, you know, the times where I were was abstinent, and those around me who were abstinent as well, they just didn't seem settled. And I thought to myself, Is this it? Is this all I have? Th- th- there's to offer an over Anonymous? Am I doomed to basically being fat and cr- crazy, or slim and crazy? Um, I mean, I'd rather be slim and crazy, I guess. And also I noticed that my absence seemed to be more challenging for me every day. And I was often watching the clock between meals. Now, sometime after that, I didn't exactly know how this was going to be resolved, and I knew I was heading for some kind of crash. But sometime after that, I met a group of people, and they called themselves Recovered, which I would never heard. And in them I saw hope. Why? Because, number one, in many of them I saw qualities that I wanted, and also they describe themselves as being transformed, as being released from the prison of food. And that's something that I really, really wanted. The big book um, taught me about this transformation um, that was to come after, after coming to the conclusion I was powerless over food. So the first is that um, I had an allergy of the body, which means I experienced a certain reaction called the phenomenon of craving whenever I eat my binge foods or engage in certain compulsive eating behaviors. Um, and what that means is that I can't control if and when I'm going to stop eating and binging that way, right? It could be one bite or 10 or 10,000. I have no control over my binge foods, and that's what the allergy of the body is. But the other part of my problem is what the AA 12 and 12 calls the mental obsession. I think the big book calls it a mental twist. Um, and that's that when I'm abstinent, which is where I was at this point, sober, and I know better, the my insane thinking takes over and – I eat compulsively even though I know what it does to me every time. This, the Big Book describes this endless, horrible cycle so well, in the doctor's opinion. Anyone who wants to follow could turn to page um, X, XVIII. <clears throat> and there at the bottom it says, Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. So I drink, I eat essentially because I like the effect produced. By double stuff Oreos, right? But that's not true that I like Oreos. I don't like Oreos. I hate Oreos. Look what they do to me every single time, but I love what they do for me. It tells me here, I like the effect. I'm going to continue reading. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot differentiate the true from the false. Yes, I admit that. Look at what the way of eating has done to me. And maybe you are a compulsive overreader like I am. But even after being on a diet or being absent for some time and knowing everything I know, what does the big book tell me? They succumb to the desire again. We pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again, not to eat compulsively again. And this is the cycle that's described in this paragraph. And I repeated this cycle over over and over and over and over and over and over right? Abstain, irritable, succumb, binge, remorse. Abstain, irritable, succumb, binge, remorse. And it goes round and round and round and round. The cycle gets faster and faster. And inside of me, I'm screaming, could somebody get me off this crazy roller coaster? How do I get off? Well, the very next sentence in the big book teaches me that there's very little hope of getting out of this crazy cycle unless, unless I experience something which they call a psychic change. Oh, Well, okay, is that all? I mean, how do I get one of those? So let's read what the big book says. We're back in the doctor's opinion. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once the psychic change has occurred, the very same person, that's me, who seemed doomed, I was doomed, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules and that's the end of the quote. So that's how I break the cycle of disease, and that's how I recover, by following a few simple rules, which we refer to today as the 12 steps of recovery, and that's how I get this psychic change or whatever it is they're talking about. And so today that's what I'm going to talk mostly about. What is this psychic change, and how do I get it? Right? How do we get one? How do we change who we are so that we don't need to eat anymore the way we used to? Later on in the big books, in the chapter titled There Is a Solution on page twenty four it refers to the change that's gonna to happen to us as a spiritual experience. And it, it tells us about that spiritual experience that they these spiritual experiences have revolutionized excuse me, revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows and towards God universe. And the word spiritual experience has an asterisk and it sends you us to an appendix at the end of the book which explains the difference between something called a spiritual experience which they describe as something more spontaneous and a spiritual awakening which develops more slowly but that basically they both both refer to the personality change that's going to that's going to happen to us now personally i experienced really both of them to some degree both spiritual experience and spiritual awakening some you know insights came quickly, some came slowly. But let me go back to the chapter. Um, there is a solution now. We're going to move up to page 27. There we find a conversation between Dr. Young and a hopeless alcoholic. And the good doctor tells this hopeless alcoholic, who he had spent already a year trying to help, that he's never seen a single alcoholic recover except the ones who have had vital spiritual experiences. So there's that word again. Right, and he further explains what what it is that a vital spiritual experience is. Um, He calls them huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. And I'm going to change the words a little bit here. Ideas and emotions and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of my life, are suddenly cast to one side, and a new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate me. So that's exactly what's going to happen when I um, embark on the 12-step process of recovery and recover, is that the things that used to drive me, the way of thinking, the way of feeling, the way of seeing the world that used to drive me is going to be whoosh, sent off, and a new way of thinking, feeling, and looking at life is going to replace that. So the long and short of it is that I'm going to transform as a person. The way I think, the way I feel, the way I act is going to be examined discarded and replaced by a new way of thinking, feeling, and acting. Now, just as an aside, I don't I don't think that alcoholics or compulsive overeaters or or any other type of addicts corner the market on selfishness or character defects and things like that. And I don't think that the 12-step program is the only way that people can overcome their personal problems. There're plenty of people out there who could transform through, I don't know, good therapy, religion, maybe popular psychology, uh, good family support, et cetera, and God bless them. But that's not my story. It's certainly not my experience, and it's not the collective experience of the recovered compulsive overeaters, right? I mean, if all that stuff had worked, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be on the line together. So what I, I basically leave all of that stuff out, all of those ideas I may have learned, all that other outside issues. Um I may have learned them wherever I learned them but when I share my story I don't talk about them because in any event it didn't work for me so what's the point of bringing them in and that's not why we're here together we're not here to talk about what worked for us out there we're here we're here to share the message of what the program of recovery has to offer and what you can expect as well Um so the first realization that I had or that I was taught as I was reading the big book was that I was self-centered to the utmost and that I was trying to run my life according to my little plans and designs. Page 60 to 63 in the big book really got me thinking. On the one hand, I believed in God, but on the other hand, I was trying to run the show, right, to play all the parts so that life would be just so. And I never really thought of myself as self-centered because I know that I was always trying to help people, but it was really a small part of the big picture which was how my life should be, you know, the life according to Esther. I mean, you'd think that if I believed in all-powerful God, I would believe that that God could do a better job of running the world than little old me. But, of course, none of that ever occurred to me until I read the big book and specifically those pages. So at the third step, turning point, I had to make a decision, and that decision was to turn my will and my life over to the care of higher power. So whatever I've got, God, I'm going to use to serve you now. I work for you now. You know, this is the attitude I took towards my higher power. You're my father, so I believe that you're benevolent, but you're also my king. So I can expect to serve you and others, and it's not necessarily going to be an easy ride or the way I you know, think it's going to be. But at least now I'm going to have access to a power which will solve my problem. Not My higher power doesn't help solve my problem. My higher power... Solves my problem, and what's my problem again? That I can't stay stopped, right? I can't keep the food down once I put it down. So, having made that decision, I needed to take action, and I needed to remove what was blocking me from my higher power, specifically me, right, myself, in all its manifestations like fear, resentments, etc. So, the first revelation that I had was um, in doing the when I was doing the fourth step. Hang on one second. I'm just gonna take a sip here. Um, well, when I got to the fourth step, doing column four, you know, before I even mentioned that, I would say that the first, <laughs> the first revelation I had was even listing my resentments. I had so many resentments. I must have had like 120 or so resentments. I didn't even realize what an angry person I was about so many things, and and how angry I was at at everybody and everything, and about all life circumstances. I didn't realize that until I was actually told to list my resentments. I would have told you, no, I'm not an angry person. Anyway, so back to what I was saying. When I did my the fourth column of the um, you know resentment inventory, I was struck by how destructive some of my thinking was. Now, for those of you who have done the steps, you'll know what I'm talking about, and you wouldn't need an explanation, but it's possible that there are some of you on the line this morning who are absolutely brand new and never heard of the steps. So I'll just briefly say... Then in step four, one of the things we do is analyze, one of the first things we do is analyze our resentment. So in column one, it's who we resent, and in column two, it's why. Column three is, you know, which instincts it affects. And in column four, I'll, which I'm getting to, and you can have a look at this if you want in greater detail on page 65. Um, column four, you know, which is, today in the resentment as opposed to, you know, the scenario when it happened years ago. But but today I ask myself where I had been selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and afraid. So column four is where I look at my part in the resentment today. So I remember when one of the questions I had to ask myself was where have I been dishonest? So aside from, you know, the plain meaning of that question, which is whether or not I actually told a lie, I was taught to ask myself what are the lies I tell myself that keep me in the resentment, meaning what are the things... Um, again, the ideas or the way of seeing life that I tell myself that keep me angry about the situation. So I brought um, a few examples of some some of the work that I did then, and I tried to keep things not that you know that the examples shouldn't be too intense, but they're from my experience, and maybe you can relate to some of them. But um, you know, maybe you'll be able to relate to some of these examples. You know, we all face our own unique challenges. But listen to the types of ideas, emotions, and attitudes that dominated my thinking, and that were the guiding forces of my life, and how they were, you know, changed. So, how about the first example? My old way of thinking. What are the lies I tell myself? I used to tell myself um, that I have to be beautiful because it's important to be loved by others, especially, you know, by men. So, what is the feeling that would emanate from that type of thinking? Well, I feel bad about myself because I was fat and certainly unlovable. Um, you know, I was resentful of the women who were beautiful. I resented the, any the men who rejected me. I re, resented, you know, life and God because you know it was my bad luck to be born fat, and that and, this, and all those feelings in, that, in turn would generate a certain way of behaving. So I would spend money I don't have, you know, to look a certain way and then effort to get others to love me. I remember there was a time where I would pass by the beauty counters, looking at these like hundred dollar an ounce creams. Wondering you know which one of them is going to transform me right um, i don't i don't um i don't always I wasn't always fiscally responsible you know because I would spend money again I didn't have it in an effort to look a certain way to get those desired you know uh, to get the desired approval. I remember not being nice to everybody, especially the ones I, the women I was jealous of, and also I would act or dress in ways that weren't consistent with my deepest values, again, in an effort to garner attention, right, and to be loved. So now I have the opportunity to to examine this idea, to discard it, and to put in a new one. So what's my new new idea? That I have intrinsic value, which is not based on how I look. That my security comes from my hopefully growing relationship with higher power, and that I'm here to serve higher power and others. So that idea now breeds a new type of feeling, which is the first is that i like myself as i am and um, you know that there you know that in the spectrum of beauty, of beauty there's everyone's going to fall on a different part of the spectrum i mean there are people who are more beautiful than others but where we fall on the spectrum is not up to us we're born how we're born and we could do what we can the best we can you know but um it's, it's it's higher power's business where he decides to put me on that spectrum of beauty number 3 i don't have to be jealous of people of the women anymore, and I don't have to be angry at the men. And the new way of, of behaving, you know, that comes from this new way of feeling is that you are not my enemy, right? I could be myself. I could be fiscally responsible. And, you know, when we groom ourselves, when I groom myself in the morning, it could be with a thought in mind that I'm God's ambassador, I'm the, a big book ambassador, and I can, I can set out to look um, – to look well and becoming and with, you know, as like a dignified human being without lowering myself, you know, again, only in order to garner approval. So when I live like that, I don't feel that, that those volcanic feelings inside. And then I don't need to eat to stuff down that volcano. So I'm going to move on to the next um, idea that I wanted to talk about today. Another challenge that I had. And the old idea that I used to have. was about kids. Maybe some of you have families there. And the old idea was that children, you know, know, of all ages, are supposed to bring you oodles and oodles of pride, comfort, especially in the later years, and that raising children should be, you know, simple and straightforward, right? Um, It should be simple and straightforward to raise children to adulthood and beyond. Now, I'm sure if you were all unmuted, I'd hear a lot of you laughing away there because it's clear that that's not true. <laughs> but because I had this idea somehow, it, again, the feelings that were generated, I was I was angry at the kids because mostly they didn't do what I wanted them to do. I resented them as an intrusion in my otherwise peaceful life. And number three, I was jealous of other people when I saw their children having or doing or being successful where my kids were not. And how did I act on account of those feelings? Well, I, was, I came down way too hard on them. Micromanaged their life. I did not always act in their best interest. Um, you know, even in ed- educating them, and I became, and sometimes I even became permissive when it was too much of a hassle to set limits. So today I have a new idea, right? And that is that the gift of children is is not something I I have or do to adorn myself or to round off my life like you know house in the suburbs, dog, kids. It's just I believe that it's a stewardship. It's a gift from God. It's a stewardship. It's sort of a, a way for God to say to me, I'm giving you these, this life so that you could raise it and, and, and you know and, and bring this person also to to be a you know higher power's humble servant. And the other idea is that parenting, um, other new idea that I had is that parenting is a challenging job. It's probably one of the only or most Probably the only job that challenges a person beyond their ego limitations. I mean, I don't, I can't think of anything else that pushes us to our limits the way parenting does. I mean, look around you. People aren't having ten kids, right? They're having two because it's, it's just hard. So this is this is something that I had to remind myself that the parenting is challenging, and it and it's not it's not for people who want to live comfortably, and it's not for people who just want to take 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 like I did. So once I understood these truths, right, this new way of thinking. Number one, I didn't take their stuff personally because it's not about me. It's about doing the right thing. Number two, I could love them with their limitations. And this in turn affected the way I act, acted. Um, everything changed in the house in terms of, you know, you know, the way I talked to them, the decibel level of my talking to them. And it also means that I don't have to abdicate authority, but I could be loving in the process of, you know, uh, of, of raising them. And the... Best thing of all of course is now that life's gotten more serene and peaceful on account of my new ideas I don't have this volcano rising up in me which needs to be pushed down with you know uh, you know a huge bag of chips right I don't have to eat anymore So I'll give you one more example and this one is sort of a well because because of time I this is more of a conglomerate of different ideas that I put together for time considerations but also you know i don't want to bore you with all the <laughs> little details of my life but one one of the old ideas or one of the sort of groups of old ideas that i had is that you know i was put here to get the most out of life to conquer the world to make my mark to be specially distinguished among my fellows and this is why i was here and, and this would make me happy so if that's how i'm thinking right so what's going to happen when i don't get my way i'm going to Number my feelings, I'm going to be resentful when anything gets in the way of my big plans. And there are thousands of things I can get in the way, right? Illness, people, life circumstance. Um, number two, that, uh, you know, this basically, these ideas basically affected me in every way, in every area of life. Like I was constantly experiencing a, a wide range of negative emotions over not getting my way. And so, of course, if I'm going to be feeling this way, how am I going to act? I'm going to act like a bully, or I'm going to act bossy, right? Because these are all the things I have to do to crawl to the top of the heap, right? To be better than you or to make my mark in the world. Or on the other hand, I, I could be, you know, a smooth talker or boastful, right? These are the ways I have to act in order to um, in order to get what I wanted, right? Because I, because I believe, or this is how I believed at the time, that I need to, you know, conquer the world, uh, be a somebody, you know, that kind of thing. So I have new ideas about that now and actually I thought that the the AA 12 and 12 said said some of these so beautifully so I'm going to read you some of the lines in the big book which sort of represent the new way of thinking of why I'm here. It's coming from the chapter in the AA 12 and 12 step 12 but I'm really taking the quotes at random. Uh here's one. We have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the sole end aim Excuse me. We have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the sole end aim and aim of our lives. Oh, well that's a new way of thinking. We would have to develop the sense of being a partnership or brotherhood with those around us. Give constantly of ourselves without demands for repayment. Well, that's completely opposite of what I thought. What else here? Here, the best possible source of emotional stability to be God Himself. What? You mean I don't have to like be on the front page of the New York Times to feel good about myself? Not according to the 12 Step program of recovery. Um, Let's see if I had another one here. Still more wonderful is the feeling that we do not have to be specially distinguished among our fellows in order to be useful and profoundly happy. Really? You mean I could basically be an, an unnoticed Joe and still be happy? So these are the new ideas. And because I have new ideas, right, in my mind, these are the new ideas, so I have new ways of feeling. And I, I think that, again, that the A 1212 here has a, a beautiful way to describe the new feelings and attitudes now that I have. these were, Here, I'll read one of them. These were new attitudes that finally brought many of us inner strength and peace that could not be deeply shaken by the shortcomings of others or by any calamity not of our own making. So this is a new way of feeling. Um, the certainty that we're no longer isolated and alone in self-constructed prisons. So... This is a new way of feeling as well, right? I don't have to be boss you to get my way. I don't have to be a smooth talker to get my way. I don't have to be boastful to get to the top of the heap. Um, these are the changes now that have happened in my thinking. It's changed the way I feel, and now it's changed the way I act. It, first of all, the feedback that I get from a lot of other people is that I'm a lot easier to be around. And when I look back at the bedevilment, I see the changes, and I relate also to the promises of the ninth and tenth step. Uh, I have changed the way I think, which in turn changed the way I feel, changed the way I act, and now I'm no longer in constant collision with with everybody in life. So a lot of the promises in the ninth and tenth step have have started to come true. But the most important thing is, again, that that volcano is not rising in me, that volcano of emotions, and I don't need to eat to push it down. And there were lots of other um, faulty ideas that I had. Quickly, I would go, let me just mention a few of them. The idea that I'm a victim or that more money will make me happier or that I need to be busy with myself and, you know, taking my emotional temperature every hour to be self-fulfilled um, or that an easy life is somehow a better life or that i got to grab because it's not enough. Uh, another idea... I also had was that I need validation. I gotta get feedback from people. I gotta know you like me, you don't like me. Who likes me? Who doesn't like me? And you know this list goes on and on. And to tell you the truth, that many of these old ideas, these old ways of thinking, really only surfaced in as I did the resentments and fears long after I recovered. Like not all of these ideas were were present in my you know my first go through the fourth step. You know I'm constantly picking out these old destructive and useless. Ways of thinking the same way you'd pick out lice from a head of hair, right you check the hair, you notice the bug, and you slowly pick it out so Although I mentioned earlier that I had flashes you know of clarity when I really did step you know step four work, you know when I recovered, most of the old ideas were discarded slowly and replaced by new ones slowly um This thought brings me to step ten you know when i um first came in the steps at least the way I understood them, that they were meant to be done at a steady clip because I want to be recovered before my mental obsession, you know, gets me to eat again, right? I need to stay sober through step nine, otherwise I'll never get recovered. But but beyond step nine and beyond being recovered, there's a long road ahead. I mean, it is a, the road of happy destiny, but the big book tells us that we do trudge it. It's kind of like a person who comes into the hospital with a heart attack, right? The Orderlies come, the doctors, the nurses, they got your oxygen mask on you and they stick things on your chest and they've got you hooked up to all these, you know, machines. They stabilize you and you recover, but it isn't the end. It's really the beginning. I mean, you've got a long way to hail and, and hearty living, you know, beyond that emergency room visit for your heart attack. So that's how I see myself now. I've recovered, I'm stable, but now it's time to grow and to move forward. So on page 85, the big book tells me that I need to continue to watch for these resentments and fears, right? Essentially, a 10th step is 4 through 9, and it's what I do to stay unblocked from my higher power. Now, why do I need to be unblocked from my higher power? Because higher power's power is going to solve my problem, so I've got to be unblocked. It doesn't matter if there are 10 ambulances parked at the end of your street. If your road is blocked, you will die because it can't get to you. So, the same thing with me. My higher power could be all powerful. He could split seas. But if I'm blocked, then I've got none of that power. And if I don't have that power, I eat. And for me, to eat is to die. To eat compulsively is to die. So, I've always been a little surprised that there are people who see resentments as either, you know, 10 step work as either um, optional or intrusive or somehow bad. It's like breathing. You know, you don't see people complaining about breathing every day, in and out, and in and out all day, because we know that without the breathing, we wouldn't live, right? So, I remember at the very beginning when I just recovered and got into the habit of doing my 10th step, I wasn't always aware of the feelings that came up because, remember, I was constantly medicating myself with food and you know, and other distractions. So, sometimes the resentments and fears would pile up and. And they would seem overwhelming. So the one thing I did in early recovery was I used to set my alarm to go off. I think it was every hour or two, and, and it would ring. And no matter where I was, I'd sort of stop my mind for a second. I'd say, "Okay, where are you, Esther? Are you worried about something? Are you annoyed at somebody? You know, what's happening?" And if there was, if I was experiencing any any sensation other than inner peace, then I know that there was something that needed to be cleaned up. Um, the AA 12 and 12 tells us in step ten that, you know, any sign of irritability or or discontent is a our signal that we need to, you know, look a little deeper. Excuse me one sec. You know, this ten step this process of self examination is not a pain in the neck. It's actually our greatest gift. Because what it does is it allows it allows me to see where I'm blocked. It's if you think about it, um in your car, you've got all kinds of lights and gadgets, gauges on your dashboard that tell you, you know, when your car is overheated, your f- fuel is low, et cetera. I imagine in the very first days of the vehicle, there, were, there was no, uh, you know, gas tank gauge. So you were when did you know that you were out of gas is when your car stopped, and who knows where you'd be right at that moment. So it's a gift to have a signal to know when we're getting off the road you know, moving towards higher power, When we're blocked. It's a good way, it's good for us to know that. It's the same thing like, uh, if you think about a cancer, right? There's cancers that really strike terror in most of us are the ones that don't have any symptoms until you're, you know, you're much further along. The ones where the symptoms come up earlier are the most curable ones because we could catch, you know, the cancer and we and hopefully eradicate it while, you know, while, before it gets, you know, to a serious level. But the ones which are asymptomatic until the, you know, get serious are the ones that are really the most uh, scary and I think the least treatable. So so the resentments and fears, et cetera, um, Those they show me where I'm off. I mean, what would happen if I ignored the signal and, and things would start to build up? You know what would happen. I'd be blocked. And if I'm blocked, I eat. And if I eat, I die. If I eat compulsively, I die. And what I also found, especially meaningful about the 10th step, is it. Shows me specifically which old ideas I'm clinging to, which ones keep coming up, which ones are am I stubbornly clinging to, which need to be discarded. And let me tell you, I I do feel that I sometimes play whack-a-mole. You remember that game at the um, at the what do you call it? The uh, one of those games that you play at the uh, you know the arcade, the whack-a-mole. Right, the, the squirrel comes up here, you whack him down. He comes up somewhere else, you whack it down. Um, that's how I feel sometimes with my resentments and fears. I have some some of them that come up constantly, and the, and those I, and when they when that happens, I know that they require a little bit extra work. So now that we know how to examine our old ideas, discard them, and then we know that we need to replace them with new ones. So you might be asking yourself, well, maybe you're not, but I certainly ask myself, where did I get these ideas from? You know, where where did I get this crazy way of thinking? And the truth is, I don't know. I mean, my parents are good, warm, you know, devoted, hardworking people. I know that I was a very sensitive child, and I I noticed a lot, and I stimulated a lot, and I watched a lot of TV, maybe too much TV. I guess that was one way to get down a whole box of Fruity Pebbles, right, a few sitcoms, and, you know, and then I'd be at the end of the box. So, you know, maybe a lot of uh, those ideas came from those type of places, from the media. I'm not exactly sure. I do believe that a lot of Western culture is directly opposed to the spiritual principles we learn in the 12-step program of recovery—it's hard to listen to that stuff day in, day out from all, you know, from all ends, and, and for it not to affect us. Um, not everything that I read and hear is helpful, and so I put these ideas often to the test, right? A lot of these, you know, catchy little phrases. You know, I was thinking actually recently about the random acts of kindness. I said, you know what? I cannot raise a family or sustain a stable marriage on random acts of kindness. That That's cute, but that's not what we learn in the program of recovery. We've read over and over again how self-sacrifice is, is really the way to go. So personally, I try to, you know, filter what I read. And I and anything that's, you know, a tsunami of, uh, of uh, let's say, off ideas, I stay far away from. You know, I stay far away from music and books, for example, that put me in self-pity because they just fill my mind with the ideas that are going to kill me eventually, so what's the point? And, and this is because, you know, everything begins in my mind. How I think is going to determine how I feel, which in turn affects how I act. So I have to carefully guard my thinking, and I have to filter what I read and see, because I don't want my thinking to be off. I don't want my thinking to be self-centered. You know, my thoughts are the guiding forces of my life, so I better make sure that they're God-centered. And I often challenge some of the ideas that I hear. Um... There's a lot of talk about self-esteem. Um, when I was, you know, up until I came into program, I was obsessed with what it was and how is it I was going to get self-esteem, and whose fault it was that I didn't have self-esteem. You know, a lot of the stuff maybe you all remember from the '80s, but over and over again, especially in the uh, AA 12 and 12 in the chapters, you know, entitled Step 12, it tells us over and over again what constitutes good living and how to achieve permanent and legitimate. Satisfactions. So for me, I just ignore out some of the stuff that you know I hear out there, and unfortunately, a lot of that stuff is brought into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. The Big Book, the AA 1212, 12, have the spiritual principles that are the guiding forces of my life. The stuff that doesn't match up with it, I choose to ignore. Another um, idea is that I used to be obsessive about me time. Right now that I now that I work on being high have power servant as well as serving others. I want to tell you that I take better care of myself now when I'm working on being a, a humble servant than I was worrying all day about me time, which is a real paradox when you think about it. Um, you know, I, I live, I or at least I try to live a God-centered life, and I'm better off than I was when I was self-absorbed. You know, worrying about if I was taking myself into consideration enough. Um, one of the unexpected, but but undeniably for me, the greatest gifts of the program is that I'm not afraid of people anymore, right? Because my old idea used to tell me that what you thought about me had the power to determine my happiness. Now my my source of stability, serenity, and peace in life comes from higher power. And that's the relationship that's most important to me, and that's the one I need to cultivate. So I don't have to be afraid of people anymore. And what does that mean? It means if I can't do something for you, I could say no. I don't have to be a people pleaser because I'm not worried that you'll think that I'm not generous or or not helpful, and I don't have to be jealous of you, and I don't have to be better or worse than you. And it's and for sure nice to be liked, and it's great to be loved, but again, higher power is that oxygen that I need for stability and serenity. And I want to tell you something, by the way, when, my relationship with other, when is my relationship with others at its best? When it's driven by service and it's God-centered. This is something I've noticed all the time. When I'm in a relationship to get something, it never works the way it works when I'm in a relationship to, to, to be of service to people and when, I'm in a, you know, when I, to the best of my ability, try to relate to them on their terms. And this includes, of course, family and you know, close family members and people that I you know, re- relate to on a daily basis. But how does all this change happen? My experience was that it happened slowly. I was trying to give um, an example of how these changes happen and how they're really imperceptible. And I, I wanted to find a better parable, but I couldn't, so I'll just share this one with you. If any of you had the experience of you know, training uh, little children to use the bathroom, right? So you know, when babies are born, they don't have, don't have control, and they do what they do in their diapers, and we clean up after them. But at some point we decide, okay, it's time for you to learn to use the bathroom. And the the very first, you know, it, it starts out with getting them to be in touch, you know, with their bodily functions and that this is what happens and this is what they have to do when they have to go to the bathroom, right? And then at the beginning, you know, there's accidents and we're constantly having to remind them. And, of course, we remind them before they go out somewhere. Um, and at some point, a, a child matures and gets to know those sensations and then knows what he he or she needs to do, you know, whether it's go to the bathroom or whatever it is, right? So so it's the same thing. And, again, it's not a great parable because this is so much more elevated than, you know, toilet chaining a child. But that's the only thing I could think of where, where it would show exactly how the change happens in a way that you can't point to a day and say, oh, that was the day the kids learned, you know. But the same thing. With me, I mean, my thinking didn't like go go through a dramatic change once I recovered, but slowly but surely um the you know the change was slow, so for example, my thinking would sometimes still be off right I'd still be telling myself these old ideas, and I would say or do something I shouldn't do, and then I'd have to you know there'd be some kind of fallout, and I'd have to clean that up. Is a 10th step, and often I'd have to make amends, right? And then, again, another time would come where, again, those old ideas would, you know, sneak into my head, and again, the resentment would build up, and again, I'd have to clean up, and then maybe it would happen again, but this time the reaction only happened in my mind, so at least there was no amends to make. You know, I didn't open my big mouth. And I'd I keep doing this, you know, over the months and years, and then I'd notice that this isn't, you know, which is normally a triggering situation for me. I would catch myself as the thought was coming to my mind. I'd say, "Hey, Esther, are you running the world again?" And I, like that that thought wouldn't even have sort of a, any soil to to sort of take root. And then, sometime I don't know later, I noticed that the, these buttons weren't being pushed anymore. Right? It it wasn't. You know, the, the same the same situations would occur. But it didn't feel like it didn't you know, like something would happen and I'd say, Oh, I remember how what I used to think when when you know, when such and such had happened, now it doesn't seem to bother me anymore. I read um and someone sent me some beautiful grape uh of grapevine and and in it was a very nice description of this. I can't remember it exactly and I couldn't find it last night, but he says at first, you know, we're counting the items right and the the person there's always got to be someone in the eight items or less aisle who's got more than eight items and we're counting them we're getting resentful and then we're counting you know the items in everyone's cart and not getting resentful but eventually we're not we're not counting the groceries of the (laughs) in the carts of the people who are standing the eight items or less right and that's how um you know that's how i found it with me like I, i would be reacting and then eventually there was just no there was no trigger and again, this happens slowly. The frequency, intensity, and duration of these feelings, and again, my reactions and resentments would you know slowly become less and less now, Of course, life brings new challenges right new meaning ones that I've never experienced before. Life also brings with it new relationships there's illness there's loss there's change um and that great spiritual personal trainer of ours, higher power. <laughs> he helped me grow and and expand you know my spiritual life that's what these challenges are meant to do bring me closer to him so this way of living has brought me definitely brought me happiness peace and serenity um i noticed that i'm no longer reacting to what to what uh, goes on around me, but i actually could set the tone and one thing someone once told me, which is very nice, is that in the past I used to act like a thermometer, right? Thermometer, the temperature rises and falls depending on the temperature, the therm- the mercury rises and falls depending on the temperature of the room, right? Always reacting. But the thermostat works differently, right? Um, the thermostat, uh, you know, no sooner does the room become cold, so the thermostat sends a message to the furnace, send more heat. When the room is too warm, it sends the message, you know, enough stuff for a while, so I get to be like a thermostat today where, where I can actually establish the, the tone for others. I can establish, you know, the norms for, for our surroundings. I could be at work or I could be a family, and instead of just reacting to what, what's going on around me, I can sort of create a certain atmosphere, right, a certain balance that makes everybody feel good. And, and this is, this is the, the, the promise of living in a 12-step way. And I have to tell you that every promise in the big book to some degree has come true for me, of course, if I'm living peacefully, I don't need to f- feel the need to eat. But it's more than that because, you know, back in my compulsive eating days, I even ate on, you know, quote, unquote, good days. So the fact that I live peacefully is one of the reasons why I don't eat compulsively. But the real miracle of the program of recovery is is the part that I can't explain, right? This is where I say that I just did my little bit, you know, and a 12-step you know, what I need to do in my program of recovery doesn't feel all that burdensome. But but I just did my part. I did the steps, right? I created an opening for higher power the size of the eye of a needle, my tiny little part, but I was rewarded with abundance of gifts, and the greatest of which is that I'm not fighting with the food anymore. You know, and slowly over the last five years, the distance between me and the food has grown, and it doesn't call to me like it used to. Thank you, God. I couldn't have done that myself. And I don't think it just came from my doing the steps. I think it's the grace of God working in my life. So how do I get... Now I've got to fill my mind with new ideas. I saturate my life with higher power, with 12-step recovery and spiritual living. And I want to tell you, you know, we're lucky to have this meeting of Vision Few. I've been listening since it began. Before that, there was a meeting similar to it, which I also listened for a few years. And I never tire of listening. Same old big book, sometimes same old people sharing. But I find that every meeting... In every meeting, it's possible to mine each meeting for nuggets. And you can listen to podcasts, and you can go to other strong 12-step groups, and and just saturate your life with, with good, healthy spiritual living, and slowly you'll see that the way you think also is going to change. And, of course, the most important thing is to carry the message. Carry the message, carry the message, carry the message, because that also helped transform my thinking. I still consider myself what they call the teenage years of recovery. I've got lots of living to do. But for now, I'm grateful today to be recovered today, and I wish you all a blessed day. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share an pass.
0: Thank you so much, Esther, for your wonderful presentation, including your fascinating insights and experience, strength, and hope for all of us to hear. So thank you very much. Esther's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned. And yes, we will proceed with question and answer period. However, due to previous technical difficulties, we're going to pause now for a brief commercial break and then we'll get back to the Q&A. Commercial break now.
1: That's when we go in Hello, to, to get a, another something else to eat in the commercials, right?
2: There we go. <laughs> okay. <Sorry.
1: laughs> go ahead, Melanie.
2: <laughs> Thank you everyone. Hello everyone. My name is Melanie. What a great presentation. Good morning, visionaries, and all our guests here today that are here for this presentation of Esther's. That was so good. This morning, before we move on then with the Q&A, we have a very important announcement regarding our upcoming convention, which is entitled, The Power of the Big Book, A Weekend of Inspiration, Education, Motivation, and Fellowship, which will be October 30th, 31st, and November 1st, 2015. There is good news. We have found room to add seats to this convention. We worked hard, and this is huge, unprecedented, and we are jam-packed and loving it. Where we were once sold out, we have found seats. So first, we are requesting that anyone that has hotel accommodations already confirmed and has not yet registered for this dynamic convention, contact Melanie C. at 541 908 1221 immediately don't delay we are saving a seat for you let me repeat if you have accommodations already confirmed at hotel and you have not registered for this dynamic convention contact melanie c there's a seat waiting for you and for all the rest that intended to register for this extraordinary convention Waiting until a later time to register, do not wait until the deadline of September 15th, which is only two weeks away, folks. Do not wait at all until another time. Please contact Melanie C right away for that and information on what we can do next. That number again is 541-908-1221 Pacific Time. The urgency is gargantuan. Contact us today.
0: Thank you, Melanie. Now back to our normal programming. If anyone has a question for Esther C., please press star 1 to unmute, please.
3: Hey, Charles.
0: Hey, Charles. Anyone else? Star 1 to unmute to identify yourself, please.
4: All right, let's break
0: the ice with Charles. Go ahead.
3: For your service. And thank you, S to see Cooling on the other side of the pillow all the time. Love your love your presentation, love your spirituality. Um, my question to you is, um, when you're taking sponsors through the program of action in particular, um, steps four through nine, um, on the average, just trying to pick your brain, what is the time frame um of in your experience a willing sponsee that you know that's that's dialing in, that's not playing games, it's not procrastinating? What is the time frame um on average that you take a, a, a willing sponsee that, that, that has made the decision through the program of action and and what is your what is your your daily 10 step? It's a two part, you know me, I'm complicated. What does your daily 10 step um look like as far as like eighty four, eighty five, and eighty six? And I'm i I'm gonna shut up with that. That's a that's enough for a Sunday that's too much for a Sunday morning. But I know you can handle it.
5: Thanks.
1: Thanks for your question, Charles. So answer the first one. In terms of the time frame for someone who's willing you know, between four and eight weeks, it really mostly depends on the time. Uh, I I usually make myself available, you know, four times a week to speak at you know up to an hour each time when someone's actively in the steps, and in that case, it could be done you know in as little as four weeks. But it also depends on their schedule, so that's really, you know, what it looks like. But it I've done it in. You know, someone was off for winter vacation. It was a teacher. She had a winter holiday, and we did the steps in about two weeks. She was willing to work a couple hours a day. I set aside my, you know, my schedule for that as well. So that's what it usually looks like. But like I think eight weeks is like a sort of the outer edge. It's usually more around six weeks. Now, your second question was about my daily tenth step, and I guess eleventh, because you mentioned all those pages in the big book. So I wake up in the morning and I do some personal, private meditation as soon as I wake up, um, and for about I would say maybe five to ten minutes. And then I have a little piece of paper which is basically just a reprodu- reproduces the you know those paragraphs in the Big Book that start uh, upon arising. Let me just open it here in the Big Book, and then I read through that. Sometimes I read three, you know, to the end of the chapter, and sometimes not. Where it says on awakening, let us think. Um, that's till the end of the chapter, and then I get up and you know get myself ready for the, the day. And then at, at some point later, I do about ten, ten to fifteen minutes of prayer, which is um, you know more religion based, not big book based. And during the day, whenever I'm feeling anything except serene, um, if something comes up, I usually, I usually. Um, I I don't do it with writing anymore, but I usually run it through my head if it's a resentment or fear. And for me, it doesn't have to be like a full-blown anger. It could be uh, annoyance, irritation, and the fear could manifest as worry or like overly concerned. Anything like that, I try to clean up. Um, I don't necessarily call. I know the big book says we should call someone on the spot. I don't necessarily do that because I'm at work. It's not always possible for me to, but I usually save it and... Um, in the evening, most days I have someone that I call, and I'd, I'd run through her if any of that stuff came up. And then sometime later on in the evening, I, you know, I, I should by that point not have any resentments and fears that are sort of still hanging. But it could be that I've missed something. I sort of like look at my day, sort of in a bigger picture. And uh, I, again, as I said, mostly my resentments and fears I'd, I cleaned up. But sometimes I can look at the day and see something that didn't quite work. Um, I, I just look at the day and say, you know. Was there, you know, what went well today? What didn't go so well? What, you know, what could I change? It doesn't always, you know, there's a way of sort of examining my day, which and a way to, like with a desire to enhance it, which didn't necessarily come out as a resentment or fear. But I don't make, I don't belabor it. It's maybe, you know, up to a 10-minute thing at night, because by then I'm pretty tired. I did hear on the line when someone said that she does this after supper, because then she's a lot more alert than she is just before she falls asleep. So I do that as well. So I could share it with a fellow in the evening. And then just before I go to sleep, I have, you know, a few few more prayers I say before I go to bed, and that's basically the long and short of it. So it doesn't come out to that much time in the day, but it but it sort of it spreads across the whole day. And that's that's it. Thank you, Charles, for your
0: question. Who else has a question for Esther this morning?
2: Uh, Hi, this is Kathy Kay.
0: Kathy Kay. Anyone else?
5: Victoria.
0: Julia?
6: Victoria.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, Victoria. That's okay. Anyone else? Okay, let's start with Kathy Kay then.
2: Uh, good morning, Leah and
5: Esther. Good morning and thank you so much. Uh, I really got a lot out of your share today and I admire your program of recovery. I wonder if you could dig a little deeper into your experience with um, steps 6 and 7 that is surrendering our characters to sex. Um, this is something... That I continue to work on, and I really welcome any insight into how you do those in your life. Thank you.
1: Um, you know, on account of step six and seven, thanks, Kathy Kay, for the question. There's not that much written about it, so when I did it with my when we were at that point with my sponsor, she didn't seem to belabor it either. I mean, when in terms of listing my character defects, I. Uh, you know, I, we we basically boiled down to the you know the, the four biggies that the big book talks about: resentment, um, selfishness, resentment, dishonesty, and fear. Um, and then in, in steps seven, you know, I'm able to, you know, I, just the just the seven step prayer basically, you know, answers that question. That is my intention. I say, God, I'm giving you all of me, right? And since you're good and bad. Why am I giving? Am I higher power of the good stuff? Don't I want to keep the good stuff? Because, cause, you know, character traits are, are sort of mixed. Some of them, some character traits work well for me and sometimes not, but I don't know. So I give everything over to God, and I ask him to remove the things that stand in the way of my usefulness to you know, to him and, and my fellows. So during the day, let's say, if a resentment comes up, um, let's say, I would say more now I have gravitate more now towards fears and resentments. It seems I've gone... Had gone from being a very angry person to not being so angry, but now as everyone around here gets older, or maybe I get older, um you know fear is more of an issue, so if I start to get into worry about uh one of my children, for example, the adult children um and, and so you know I process that that fear and then I come to to the point where i you know where i I'm able to name it and say this is you know fear, and then I turn to higher power and I say please remove this from me you know take the good and the bad meaning i want to be um sufficiently concerned but not but not worried worried um so you take all of it give me what i need and then and re, and remove what's not helping me because i can't be useful to these to these children if i'm filled with fear and i certainly can't be useful to you god so i don't um more than that i, I don't i don't belabor it more than that right so so this is an example um when they travel, when my children travel, um, I still have issues coming up, you know, that I worry about, especially when they drive in, you know, the winters as they drive upstate New York and through Canada, you know, um, um, they they can create fear or anxiety in me. So so on the one hand, I want to be prudent, right, to say, you know, maybe you want to take this road because, you know, the paths are clear. But on the other hand, I don't want to, you know, come down hard on them or to do what I once did as I said to them, you can't visit me in the winter, and they're laughing because they know that it's because I'm nervous, and it's funny even to say it. But but so so that, so when I process that fear again, I say, God, take take me, take you know all of me, and just you hold on to the things that I don't need that 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 block me from you, that block me from a good relationship with these kids. And but give me what I need. I want to keep the part of me that's prudent. You know, there's nothing wrong with a mother saying, you know, I think that those roads are paved better than those roads, right? So that's um. That's really my understanding of steps six and seven. I hope that helps
0: Thank you, Kathy thank, you. Kate. thank you thank you
6: Victoria. Your turn Good morning, fellows. Good morning, Esther. Thank you for your service i have a i think I have a difficult question. I don't know if it's something that you can answer every time I read the big book. Chapter 5, I'm always wondering if I'm one of those people who are constitutionally unfit. Because I, I ask myself, why do I keep procrastinating? I'm not a newcomer. I've just been listening to the telephone meetings as if one would be listening to the radio. And I was surprised that I actually found that sentence that sticks in my craw. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path and i thought oh well maybe i'm not too far gone i figured out it's on page 58 of of the fourth edition so i'm i'm wondering what your experience strength and hope is about that because i i'm fearful that i'm one of those people who cannot or will not completely give myself to this simple program because i think well if I was able to why would not why would I not have sought recovery in twenty ten when I first started listening to the meetings and that's just kind of uh where i'm at and thank you for your beautiful testimony I pass
1: hi victoria um that's actually a great question um it it reminds me of um you you know i people often use um the parable of cancer when just when you know talking about the disease and and as you were asking that question well what if i'm one of the ones who are constitutionally capable and and i thought to myself so let's say someone's got cancer the doctor says well this you know this plan of uh of uh, treatment has 50 percent so if the person wants to live they're going to you know go ahead anyways with it i mean they might and they may not be one of the ones who will survive but If if we don't embark on the program of recovery, then we'll never know if we are one of the ones who are or aren't constitutionally incapable. Um, Why haven't you? I don't know, but what I have noticed, I don't know why you haven't. Um, There could be all kinds of reasons why people don't recover, but sometimes I don't think that life gets bad enough for people. I was in a pretty bad state by the time I came into the program of recovery, but if I were one of those people... Whose life wasn't bad enough, and I was looking for, um, you know, sort of an, a reason or an explanation for it. I might sort of latch on to that line in the big book that says, well, some people don't recover, constitution- they'll recover, they're constitutionally capable. Maybe I'm one of them. You know, pass the Doritos or whatever it is that you eat. I don't know. I couldn't tell you why you do what you do, but I, I'm only sharing with you some of the things I've seen in, in uh, other people. Um, I, I didn't, you know, when I was in doing the steps and recovering, I wasn't thinking if I was or wasn't constitutionally capable. I wasn't, you know, when I finished ninth step I wasn't going, am I recovered, am I not recovered? Like, I just did what I had to do, and the, the, the outcomes that they promised, you know, came true, and I wasn't kind of taking, you know, stopping and looking around and assessing, and, you know, I just did what I had to do because I was just desperate. So I don't know if that's helpful, but... Maybe some of those ideas will trigger something that will be helpful for you.
0: Thank you, Victoria, for your question. Anyone else with a question this morning for Esther?
7: Hi, this is Donna M from Wisconsin.
0: Donna M. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. If there's a question on your mind, I'm sure it's on the mind of a dozen others.
7: Hi, this is Maria. I had a question.
0: Maria. Okay,
4: anyone else? Donna M.,
7: you're up. Okay, thanks, Leah. Thanks a lot for your service. And Esther, thank you so much for your share this morning. I really appreciate your experience, strength, and hope. Okay, so I have I a lot of hope. I'm on step nine and 10 and um, writing out my nine-step letters. And one thing I notice is um, you address this a little bit with worry, and I'm just wondering what you can share about um, morbid self-reflection. And I know, you know, the big book talks about, you know, like I see myself as a tornado roaring through the lives of others and I'm very willing to make amends. Um but I can't shake this like, wow, have I been selfish thought, you know? And, um, and just wondering, and starting to look at, I wonder if that's false pride that, uh, yeah, I can't be the worst person on the planet, but I'm not the best person on the planet. And so I'm, I'm wondering like just keep going to God and trust that this, this feeling will go away as I move on. Um, It's just pretty pervasive. And I just, I just don't seem to be able to shake it for any amount of time. So, whatever you could share about that, that would be great. Thank you, Esther.
1: Don, are you referring to the feeling of knowing that you've sort of hurt people or done things that will have long-term, you know? That, that well, maybe, it just, maybe, mm-hmm. that maybe can't I'm be sorry, fixed. Is that no, what
7: I think everything can be repaired. I have a lot of hope. I'm I'm definitely on the road to being recovered. Um, but I just see how selfish I've been, how self-centered I've been, and uh, and how ungrateful uh, that I've been with you know people in my life, people who've helped my family, and so I'm I'm just kind of shocked how unaware you know when I was in the food. I, I just I think I guess, I guess that's what it is. It's it's a a, a shock at how I could you know, really be a tornado, just you know flying through lives of others and. Getting to the food, <laughs> so um, you know, very grateful that I'm I'm abstinent, but um, just this feeling of of uh, you know having having looked at the past. I just want to not regret the past, I guess. So um, anyway,
1: um, you know, those thoughts, and I had many of those thoughts too, propelled me to do what I have to do on a daily basis. The greatest amends I could make to myself and the others that I hurt around me, excuse me, <laughs> was to just live differently. So that put me in a, a place where I did everything I was supposed to do, whether it was in recovery or or carrying the message, sponsoring other people. And if that's the case, then you are, um, you know, then your uh, you know your goal is God-centered. But if I don't know if if you want to get into remorse or self pity on page eighty six I'm happy to announce anyone t- to everyone here that I got a divorce who did I divorce i divorced self pity dishonest and self seeking motives. The big book tells us that that road you know of self pity always takes us back to ourselves takes us away from higher power. we get blocked, and we already know what happens when we get blocked. We eat so again you can um use your memory of the way it used to be to make you know to keep to remind you what you need to do today. But if it takes you to a place of self pity, just like move on and help somebody else, right? If you're, if you, if you look back, like I mean, sometimes um, I have thoughts of, you know, when my children were very little and the way they were raised. And what's the point of belaboring that? Certainly, I can't do anything about what happened. All I could do about, you know, is change something in the future. So maybe I could think about that child and say, Esther, anything you could do to better your relationship with that kid today? What's something you could do? If I could be sitting in the room with them and say, say, could you say something now that would build them? you know, kind of as an amends for the, what you said to them 10 years ago. So is it useful for you to serve God, you know, keep those thoughts, and if not, just, just move on. And that I'll pass.
0: Thank, Thank you, you, Donna.
1: very helpful.
0: Thanks, Donna, for the question. Maria, your turn.
4: Um, hi, this is Maria compulsive
1: Reader. Um, My question was, um, when you first started sharing, um, you read something um, off of a page. Um, Can you tell me what page that was from and what book? The very first thing that I read, I believe, was from the doctor's opinion from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it was Men and Women Drink, Essentially. And that's on page XXVIII. Okay. Um, it was more on, uh, well, it was um, saying about how you couldn't get along with other people. You know, that oh. was the re- when. Oh, the bedevilments it's on page 52 about um, the middle of the page.
0: And thank you, Maria. Anyone else with questions? This is the last invitation for questions for this morning. Star one to unmute. If you have a question for Esther, please. Elizabeth. Elizabeth, anyone else?
4: Going once.
0: Twice. Carol G. Carol G. Going three times. Anyone else with questions? Okay, I'll take that as a no. Elizabeth, go ahead, please.
5: Well, Donna kind of captured my question very well. But I have a further one. Can you hear me? Yes. This is Elizabeth and Edmondson, recover compulsive overeater. Very grateful. Um, I feel like I'm living in a dream world right now, and I'm not sure if it's pink cloud or whatever, but, um, but I, I, I feel like I have so many apologies to make. And um, I'm just wondering if I'm overdoing it, or if there's false pride in there, or or what that is, but um, it's almost like everybody I talk to, I have to say, I've been so selfish and self-centered. And I'm, I'm, you know, (laughs) trying to give God the glory for this change in me, Um, but I I keep falling into that, oh, I'm so selfish and self-centered rut, that I'm not sure it's Uh, It's productive, or is it a way of making amends? Um, Yeah, I just want to keep making progress and still growing. So if you can give me any insight on that. Thanks.
2: Uh, Elizabeth, are these
1: people on your list that you need to make amends to? Or are are you just walking around to people saying you've been selfish?
5: Um. I feel like that tornado that has gone through and every life I've touched has been damaged. And so it's kind of people that are not, I, guess, I don't want to say it, significant enough to be on that list, but there are people I'm interacting with now that I used to interact differently with before. So it's not just random people, but they are people from my past like, former students that I've taught. I mean, I, I felt as a teacher, I was always teaching subjects, not students. And I was hard on my on the students. I was hard on my kids as a parent. And I'm trying to, I guess, live amends. But I still catch myself falling into that being selfish and self-centered. Self-accusation, I guess you could call it. And then I wonder how much that comes across in my um talking i guess should i bring that out in my talking or should i just show more interest in them i guess maybe it would be better
1: you know i i think with your sponsor the discussion of whether they need an outright amends that would probably be appropriate but in terms of this idea which i also have where people who rel- who are in contact with large groups of people and just generally were you know we were bad apples, and it was clear that like you as you mentioned that it um your selfishness had affected your teaching, and so that's a, a lot of students every year um m- what I received from my sponsor what others around me was that the that good living and right living is really the best uh answer from here on like there's no there's no um there's no value to to um you know to running up to i didn't feel to running up to every person you know you know who i had interacted with who may or may not have i used to teach also you know years back and i don't know if i walked up to a kid who's today 30 who was then 5 who probably didn't even remember my name and said you know that i was your teacher and i was very selfish i i think that that you know living well today is the is the best amends i can make um, you know, to correct what I've done, right? Bringing light where I used to bring darkness. But of course, if there are specific harms that you have come up with, you know, with your sponsor, then I think those should be, you know, addressed in the way we do with the ninth step. But, but good living is—I'm telling you—it's um—it's the best—it's the best thing we do. I, I see it in my own experience that just bringing light to the workplace is is a is just the best event, the best. It, you know, just being a transformed person is how I bring light today to to the world. I don't know if I would be more useful reminding people or letting them know that at one point I had been selfish and, and rude to them or or to, you know, groups of people. Um, that's my little contribution. I hope that's helpful.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth, for the question. And our last question this morning comes from Carol G.,
5: Hi Leah, can you hear me? Yes. Ah, good morning and thank you, everybody. Thank you, Vision for You. And thank you, Esther. It's Carol G. Recovered Compuls Favorita. Um, I love your wisdom, Esther. Thank you so much. And my question is on the idea of being a human being versus a human doing. And I'm referring to page eighty six where it says, um, when we ask God for inspiration, we might not be able to determine which course of action to take. We relax and take it easy until the right answers come. I'd be really interested to hear how that's changed for you compared to when you were first newly recovered and now that you have more wisdom and spiritual maturity. Thank you. Can
1: you tell me that line again. I didn't, it didn't come through clear when you said it. From the okay. What
2: page was that? Page 86 in that part of our morning meditation where... We ask God
1: to employ our mental faculties with assurance, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Carol, is that what you're asking?
4: I don't hear you anymore. Carol, we don't hear you.
1: I can address the question as I understood it was asked.
0: Please go ahead, Esther, yes, to expound on those ideas with your new wisdom and experience, yes.
1: First of all, Carol, I don't have any of my own wisdom. There's spiritual principles which are universal, right, and true for all people, and anything I've said today or, or I ever say is not my own. Is not my own. These are just universal spiritual principles. So if I would, you know, Talk to you about gravity. You no know, one say, "Wow, she discovered gravity." No, no, I'm just telling you about something that that was here before I got here and will be here after I got here. But having said that, those lines that you were uh, referring to, this is how I see them. Um, what I'm asking God in the morning is to direct my thinking, because if it's if it's being propelled if by God-centered, you know, motives. Then my brains, when you know, and I believe God gave me brains, and I think, of, you know, at least average of, of average intelligence, then I can, I can use it, um, in a way that's helpful and in a way that you know, that's useful to 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 my higher power and my fellows. So when it says here, our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is clear of wrong motives. It just to me it means that as long as I keep myself. You know, on the line of God-centeredness and not self-centeredness, that everything that I've got going for me, you know, every resource I have at my disposal will be used, you know, for service of God, and, and the outcome will be good, and of course I will be peaceful. Yes, and 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 I know that at the be, at the beginning, <laughs> um, I think he talks about it here on the um, on page eighty-eight where. Um, it, or maybe on a different page where he says that at the beginning we we might we mistake, you know, make mistakes or act impulsively, which I think is probably common and normal. But I think that slowly our way of thinking becomes different. I've noticed that at um, meetings that I have at work, it's just a different way of thinking, a different way of approaching problems. It's not like you know type A, you know fist on a table. This is what I got to do. I just just noticed that if I can you know be in proper. Meditative state beforehand that 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 I don't know that that more can flow through me that's positive, and so it's not that I gain more wisdom, but maybe that um slowly but surely more often than not, my thinking is guided by god centeredness and not self centeredness so if you're still there, Carol, that's what how I understood those lines past.
4: Yes.
0: Thank you, Carol G., for the question. And, of course, thank you, Esther, for your time and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us this morning. It was uh, very helpful, I'm sure, to many. and um, You are truly living proof that the program of recovery works when we work it. And I'll close now from page 164 in our big book,